0: Our next guest is Colin Campbell, and he's an Academy-nominated writer and director for theater and film. He teaches at Chapman University and Cal Poly Tech Pomona University. He has two beautiful and brilliant teenage children, Ruby and Hart. Both Ruby and Hart were killed by a drunken driver in 2019, and Colin has drawn strength and inspiration from the morning rituals of his wife's Jewish traditions. His book. Finding the Words: Working Through Profound Loss with Hope and Purpose was published in two thousand twenty-two. I'm excited to talk today about that very fact. the The idea of uh, how do we how do we bridge that chasm between us and people who haven't lost a loved one and and I think that a lot of us struggle. I certainly struggle with feelings of isolation and and abandonment. So after Ruby and Hart were killed, um, I. I was suddenly thrown into this terrible reality that I was grieving, um, and I didn't know how to grieve, <laughs> and I didn't even know uh, how I was going to manage to move forward. But I I went to a lot of grief groups. So I went to multiple um, compassionate friends. I went to an organization called Our House, which is wonderful as well. They're both wonderful. And also uh, Mad uh, had grief groups. Mothers Against Drunk Driving because. My children were killed by a drunk driver, a drunk and high driver, and I found them very helpful. All those groups, but I noticed an interesting pattern, which was this: the groups would begin with everybody sharing their losses uh, and their 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 anguish, and their despair, and their aching, their terrible aching for the loved one that was gone. But very quickly, the conversation would shift to how they all felt. Or many felt abandoned uh, by the people they love, abandoned and betrayed by their community who were not there for them in their time of need. And I read books that said that too. A lot of grief, grief books said, you'll find out who your true friends are now because most of your friends will, will leave you. And I was struck by this. I thought, oh my God, my friends love me. <laughs> they love Ruby and Hart. Surely I'm not gonna be betrayed and abandoned. That's not gonna happen. But yet I saw how it could happen because it was, it was starting already. And it was like, to my mind, it was like this vicious cycle because people didn't know how to talk to me because our culture doesn't tell people how to talk to the grieving, right? And I was, a, I think, a scary figure for many of my friends. Uh, they didn't know what to say without offending me or, or making me feel more pain. They didn't want me to hurt anymore. So they backed away a little bit. And then I also felt myself backing away because in early acute grief, you know, a lot of times we want a cocoon. We 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 can't deal with uh, interacting with other people, right? We don't feel very social in early grief. But I could feel already that chasm opening up, and I could see myself getting angry with people because why weren't they calling? Why weren't they coming around? Why weren't they talking to me? Uh, and yet. At the same time, if they did come by, oftentimes I would say, no, I I can't. I'm not available. I'm not up for talking with you tomorrow. You know, they they call up and say, hey, do you want to go for a walk tomorrow? And I say, tomorrow? I I have no idea what I'm doing the next half hour. I I can't commit to something tomorrow, so no. And then I thought, oh, no, (laughs) I need my community. I learned through a lot of the Jewish traditions of grieving, which involved community very centrally, I learned how important that was to me. So for example, Shiva, people come to your house every night for the first week after the funeral and, and sit with you. And I found it so helpful in my early grief to be able to talk to my friends and family about Ruby and heart and about my grief. I found it was almost necessary for me in order to process what was happening to me. So when Shiva ended and people stopped coming around, that's when I started to panic. And I started to get, I started to feel myself get angry and frustrated, and so I was determined that I that wasn't going to happen to me. I was going to keep my friends and family. I was going to figure out how to do that, how to bridge that chasm. And I came up with a few a few tools that I think were certainly helpful to me. So I, I'm sharing with them. I'm sharing them with you now, in the hopes that they might help someone out there as well, who's also feeling abandoned and isolated in their grief. And one of the first tools I discovered was, uh, was what I call my grief spiel. So people would come to my house and, and they would open the door and, and then they would look at me with just like panic and they wouldn't even say hello because they were so scared they might offend me, right? They wouldn't mention Ruby and Hart's name either because they thought that I might hurt my feelings, right? Oh no, my children, you reminded me my children are dead as if I had forgotten, right? And so part of my grief spiel was I would pull people aside and say, look, here's the deal, <laughs> I need to talk about Ruby and Heart. I need to talk about my grief and grieving. And I can talk about something else for a little while, but then we gotta circle back to my grief and grieving and Ruby and Heart right away. <laughs> and I need you to talk about Ruby and Heart. I need you to say their names and tell me stories about them. And it, it, it came out of this real necessity, this real desperation that I felt, that I was, felt like I was plunging into uh, an abyss and, I, and I, I couldn't get through it alone. And what i found was that i got great feedback from my my grief spiel Uh, people would tell me oh my gosh thank you for telling me what you need i i had no idea and they felt relieved and they started talking about ruby and heart and we had conversations about my grief what was happening to me in that moment and so it was a lot of like positive reinforcement you know Uh, and so i kept up with my grief spiel my wife and i both did that we kept talking to people about what we needed And our needs changed you know very early on um people would try to relate to us by sharing their losses like they lost a a grandma five years ago or their cousin died 10 years ago uh and and they were trying to do that as a way to connect but for me it it felt upsetting because i didn't i didn't have the emotional bandwidth to think about their grief right now because i was in a fresh acute grief And also it felt like they were comparing, like your cousin died 10 years ago, you know, who cares? My kids just died. (laughs) And so I feel differently now. Now I I do, I wanna talk about their losses. I wanna talk about their cousin who died 10 years ago. Absolutely. But in fresh acute grief, I I didn't have the bandwidth. I I couldn't talk about anybody else's losses. So I put that in the grief spiel, you know? (laughs) Um, And it helped because people stopped doing that. And so, anytime in my early grief process, where I, I found new problems, I discovered that sharing my needs with my friends was incredibly helpful and I've had people ask, like, "Was anyone ever like irritated or offended by your grief spiel?" you know because it's kind of awkward, right telling your friends like, "This is how you need to talk to me right now <laughs> um, but that's how early acute grief is right it' it's, it's selfish, it has to be because it's such a catastrophic event, you know? And so the answer is no, none of my friends ever were offended or upset. They all were appreciative and, uh, and they all took, took the note as it were. In other words, they, they heard my grief spiel and they changed their behaviors so we could have a real conversation about grief uh, and deepen our friendship as a result. Um, at one point I found that people were very reluctant to cry around me So they would talk to me, they'd be like fresh and bubbly, and they'd go off in the corner in the bathroom, hide and cry, and then come back. And I was like, why are you going away from me crying? (laughs) Like, I I cry all the time, it feels really strange. Um, Please know that it's okay to cry. And I might cry as well, but that's okay. And that was very helpful too, you know, very reassuring to people because they were scared that if they quote unquote made me cry, they were hurting me. You know, but actually, I I cried every day. Uh, I felt the need to cry about Ruby and Hart, and uh, and I really it helped me to see other people cry. It helped me to feel less lonely, you know, less abandoned, because it wasn't just me that was grieving. My whole community was grieving, which of course is true, right? Uh, you know, when somebody dies, the whole community grieves them, but oftentimes the the central people, the 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 primary mourners, the immediate family they're like left out of it, <laughs> out of, out of deference, you know, it, it, as an out of the idea that to, to, to not hurt them, but what it makes them feel is isolated. Like nobody else is crying, just me. Um, so it was, it was, I used to say, I love seeing kids cry. I love seeing Ruby and Hart's friends cry, uh, which sounds sadistic, but, uh, but it helped me. It helped me to feel not so alone. Um, and then another tool that I want to share is that, uh, Gail and I both used emails because the grief spiel in person is wonderful, but sometimes it's hard to like find your words, right? Uh, Especially in grief, you want to say the right thing. And so sometimes we would craft emails and I share these emails in the book uh, because I I, I loved the idea of being very practical and just showing exactly what we did. (laughs) But um, I, I wrote these emails and Gail wrote these emails to people that we would carefully craft full of love right if we're giving somebody a note we want to say we love you thank you for helping us thank you for supporting us but there's this one thing that's difficult for us to hear and uh and so that was sort of our, our main mode was like send an email pack it full of love and then tell the person the note to please change this behavior because it's hurting us um and and, and one time we had a friend a very close friend dear friend um who who was very supportive Uh, But it's had a strange habit of of narrating our grief. So she would, as a way to connect with us, I think in a way to show how deeply she felt our loss, um, because she also loved Ruby and Hart and loved us, she would sort of tell us how we were feeling. And to our ears in that early grief, it it hurt hurt us to hear her very vivid, beautiful, poetic words describing how she thought we felt. Uh, And so we wrote her an email and said, this thing's happening and and please don't narrate our grief and we want to talk to you, let's take a walk and talk about it. And we were nervous to send that email because that was a very sort of, that was almost more direct than the other emails because it was specifically pointing out a behavior that that was hard for us to hear and it's hard to do with a friend. But she wrote back right away this amazing email where she said, um, you know, thank you for sending this email out and um, I've never had to accompany somebody who's lost both their children before. And I'm certain to fall on my feet because I I don't know what I'm doing. And it's so helpful to hear some guidance. And I'm paraphrasing. Um, But, uh, and then we went on the walk together and she said something else to me on the walk, which I also thought was so beautiful. She said, "I I can imagine how hard it would be to send an email like that. And it means so much to me that you value our friendship so much that you're willing to send such a personal email to me. Um, and she was absolutely right about that. Uh, it took a lot of effort and thought and care and you know, chutzpah to send an email to a dear friend like that. Um, and part of us wanted to say, you know, oh, forget it, let's just never talk to her again. <laughs> uh, no, no, let's actually trust in our friendship and send her an email. Um, and and we've, we've remained very close friends ever since. Um, and uh and I'm, I'm so grateful that we were able to overcome that obstacle you know um and uh another tool in which gail and i have found that helps us keep our community close is uh is in rituals so very early on uh in the jewish tradition You're supposed to mark the end of of Shloshin, which is the first 30 days after the funeral. You're supposed to mark it with some kind of a ceremony. And they don't tell you what the ceremony is. You're supposed to make up your own ceremony. And at first that was daunting, like make it up ourselves. What are we supposed to do? And then we thought about it and we thought, well, what would be meaningful to Gail and I? What would be meaningful to Ruby and Hart and their memories? And we came up with a gathering uh, at a park. It's called the Los Angeles Arboretum. It's a beautiful park uh, in Arcadia, about an hour or 45 minutes east of Los Angeles. And we went there a lot as a family, the four of us. We loved it. Well, their whole lives we've gone to this park, many, many wow. memories. And so we held it there. We found two trees, uh, these Engelman oaks. Their, their branches are interlocking, almost wow. as if they're hugging each other. It's so beautiful. Uh, we got a dedicated name plaques put on the, on the trees, dedicated to Ruby and one to Hart. And we gathered a group of friends together and we sang a song, we held hands, we shared stories about Ruby and Hart. And we had this very meaningful, we laughed and we cried, uh, a very meaningful gathering. And in a way it taught me, ah, you know, here's an opportunity. Anytime I'm having a tough holiday coming up, I could hold a ritual gathering, you know, it could be small, just a couple people, just a gathering to commemorate Ruby and Heart and our love for them and our loss. And it would help me get through tough days. Uh, and, and that's held true. So, so they were killed four and a half years ago, and I've held many, many gatherings. Um, and it's funny, you know, I think some people think, oh, you know, you're holding another ritual gathering. You're, you're, you're holding another memorial why aren't, why aren't you over it you know are, are you too obsessed with death right you're, you're you're too locked in grief but actually it's the opposite you know holding these gatherings commemorating ruby and Hart's lives it's a way for me to move through grief and not be stuck actually uh, it's a way for me to be more alive and more present in my current life and not trapped in the past so I think there's a misconception out there um, that that you know having a shrine in your home um, uh, is somehow keeping you trapped. But actually, I think it's the opposite. My experience is it's the opposite. Um, you know, having these rituals where we commemorate the dead allow us to live more fully in the present. Um, so that's been a wonderful tool as well. And and, and one more tool I want to I want to mention is uh, is I had a policy early on of saying yes to everything. So the instinct was say no to everything, right? Somebody says, "Oh, do you want to go walk on Saturday?" I'd say no. And I found myself saying no to everything. And I thought, "Oh, wait, wait. What if I say yes to everything? Like literally everything. <laughs> Even though I don't want to or I won't know, I don't know if I'll be able to, in a way it's it's putting me back into life." And and that was a very useful tool early on to keep my friendships. Um because we were having a shared activity and we were going on a walk together. And it was so empowering to be able to talk about my grief with a friend on a walk rather than being alone uh, at home and just sort of sinking in the the shapeless morass of grief. So even though I didn't wanna say yes to anything, I just sort of instinctually knew that would be pulling away from life. And so I said, say yes to everything. (laughs) Um, And it, it helped me, it helped me. I did a lot of strange things. Overall, it was a great experience to do that. I've learned that it helped me to help others, to know I'm not the only one, put one foot in front of the other, find a life. Adding hope to the darkness, you start on the trip to recovery. Reach deep down inside and say, I am gonna live on. We laugh, we cry, and remember. Hope without action doesn't work. Hope with action can change the world. We always say, if you've lost hope, please lean on ours.